All right, so just as way of review on your, your outline here, we have three major sections that we're working through in the book of First Peter. We've got uh, chapter 1, 1 through 2, 10, where we see that we're chosen for new birth. Then 2, 11 through 3, 22, where we're called to new behavior. And then 4, 1 through 5, 14, where we are kept for coming glory. So those are three big sections that we've got there. In each of those three sections, we have two smaller sections, and we made it through um, the first major section. We got into the second major section, called the New Behavior, and we are right there in the middle of 2.11 through 3.7, glorifying God in our conduct. So that's, that's the section that we're in this morning, which is uh, chapter 2, verse 18 is where we're going to pick it up. So we saw yesterday, 2.11 through 2.12, uh, Christian conduct as witnesses, and then Christian conduct as citizens, and uh, the fact that Christians are to be the best citizens that a government could, could have. And now we're going to move into Christian conduct as slaves or servants. Okay, So let's, let's read verses 18 down through 20, and then we'll, we'll, pick, we'll, we'll grab the next couple verses here in just a moment. But somebody go ahead and give us 18 through 20, please. Good. So this, this section is written to, to servants or to, to slaves. Now when we, when we hear slaves, um, I think it's important for us to just give a, a little in, a word here about this. That this, this slaver that they're referring to here is not the wicked 16th to 19th century um, slavery that was legal here in the United States of America. Um, it's, a, it's a different kind of system, not one that's based on uh, kidnapping or um, racism. Now, that being said, this was still not a, not a great system. This was, um, they were still filled with, with injustice. Um, but, but at the same time, we would, we would probably think of this arrangement more like an employee-employer relationship than we would in regards to legitimate slave and master on like plantations here in the United States. So the category that we're going to be approaching this with this morning is thinking of it more in the employee-employer type uh, situation, recognizing, though, there are cultural differences um, in regards to what masters uh, were, were free to do uh, to those um, who were indebted to them in this way. And I'm happy to take questions for any kind of clarification as we go through here. Glad to, glad to do that. I can also point you to some, some resources on understanding um, slavery in the first century um, in, in Rome and what that looked like um, might, might be helpful for, for further study another time. But for our brief study this morning, we're going to be approaching it more of the employee-employer um, type, type scenario. Now, one other word is I think it's important for us to notice here that though there was injustice in this system, God here doesn't give explicit commands about how to overturn or even correct the system that is unjust there. 
That doesn't mean that God doesn't, um, you know, empower his people to, to do that. Um, but what it does mean is that here, what he's focusing on is how they can glorify him in the midst of an unjust system. Because as we all know, systems of injustice don't change overnight. They, they, they don't. So whatever good may be coming, um, sometimes it's a very slow process of change. And God says, as that's happening, or even if it's not happening, what we need to do is be faithful in the midst of it. And that's what he's, he's calling his people to do here, how to glorify him. So, again, let's take these principles and think about them specifically in regards to how it might work with our employee and employer relationships, okay? So, the command here for, for servants is what? What's, what's your command there? Be subject, yeah. So to place yourself under the authority of another. Um, and, and with what posture of the heart? Respect. With all respect. So there is, there is to be a posture of the heart that, again, Christian employees have toward uh, their employers. Whether their employers are, we'll see here in a moment, just or unjust, godly or ungodly. Um, that there is a, a posture of the heart that's to mark Christians. So when a Christian shows up to work, there's something distinctly different about them um, than, than those who don't know Jesus. Okay? Uh, let me read this to you from Colossians 3, 23 and 24. This is, a, I think, a helpful little section of Scripture here. Whatever you do, work wholeheartedly as for the Lord rather than for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. It is Christ whom you serve. So one of the things that the gospel does for us is it, it frees us to be able to be faithful in the midst of very difficult circumstances. Because our hope and our reward is not tied to here and now ultimately. Doesn't mean here and now doesn't matter, but what it does mean is that ultimately we're serving for that last day. And we're serving the Lord. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve. We are ultimately serving Jesus. This helps us greatly in, in our employment. I mean, I'm sure all of you have wonderful bosses who are very easy to work for. Um, but in a hypothetical situation where that wouldn't be the case, um, this frees you right now to know that, yes, submitting to him or her is very difficult, but ultimately, when I'm doing this thing, I'm doing it for Jesus. That helps you to serve wholeheartedly wherever you might be placed. And then he says, not only to the good, but also to the unjust. So God says, yes, it's, it's true. We don't, in one sense, get to pick and choose who is worthy of our respect. He says, we are a people who have this posture. If someone who is over you in your employment is, is difficult, they should still see in you by your prayer and sometimes having to step away into another room and pray, Lord, help me. They should still see an otherworldliness about our love, about our patience, about our kindness, the way we use words, the way we don't use words, about just our posture in general. Because, again, we are setting our hearts and our, our eyes and our aim of our obedience is ultimately for, for the Lord. And he says here, twice. Did you notice that this is a, 
This is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows, sorrows while suffering unjustly. He says it twice here. This is a gracious thing. What that, what that means is that God sees it. And this is, I think, helpful in the midst of our hard times. If we know that God sees this, if we know that He's watching, and that our responses are tied to, this pleases the Lord, this pleases the Lord, this pleases the Lord, that frees us to be able to endure some really difficult things. When you are mindful of God, Lord, this is for your glory. This is for your pleasure. Help me as I'm about to go into this meeting. Help me as I'm about to carry out this task that I really don't want to do. God, help me. It, it helps us to be able to endure unjust situations and struggles and trials. Um, now, remember that God, God hates injustice. And he sees every bit of it. Daniel read a text about that last time. If we, we, whenever we do one of these boot camps on one of the minor prophets, uh, which we might do in the spring, uh, I think we will see God hates injustice. He hates it when people who have authority use it wrongly to, to hurt those who are under their, uh, their care. And what we rest in is that God will judge it fully and finally. He feels compassion for his children, even in the midst of their suffering. When you read through the Exodus account, he says, I've heard your cry. I know, I see. And what we see is that God is working, even in in the midst of those very difficult situations, to deliver his people. He will bring that about, but we don't know how quickly that will happen. Then he goes on to say here in verse 20, For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good... And suffer for it, you endure. This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. So again, in our context of employee-employer, what good is it if you get fired for doing evil? Right? That, that doesn't do anything to give God glory. If, if you're mad about the situation and you do something um, that is sinful or illegal or something like that, and then you get fired for it, he's like, that God doesn't get any glory for that. God gets glory when we trust Him in the midst of it. But if they fire you because of your devotion to Jesus, listen, if, if, if you have to make some decisions that are difficult at work to where because of your allegiance to Jesus, you're going to end up losing your job, it should be the most difficult decision that that company has ever had to make. Like the board should come together beforehand and be like, oh my, we have to fire him. We have to fire her. But man, we don't want to do that because they're crazy with some of their views, but they are the best employee that we have. They're the most faithful, trustworthy employee that we have. That should be the decision that the company has to wrestle with in some, some form or fashion. Now, I do want to highlight that there are, there are proper channels for Christians to report injustices in the workplace um, and, and in our society more broadly, um, but we can't always affect the outcome. You know, any of you who have ever tried to go to, through HR for something, you can't, affect, you can't affect the outcome of it. But what you can do is, by the grace of God, know that when no one else sees what you, the way you see it or believes the way that you believe it, that there is a God who, if you are aiming to obey Him in the midst of these difficult things, sees and it is a precious thing in His sight. God says, watch me, trust me, rest me, I will care for you. Now, I'll pause for one moment before we, we move into what he's going to do. Is he's going to say now, now watch how Jesus did. 
Watch how Jesus did it. Um, but I just want to pause for one second to see if, if you need any more clarification on any of this that I said right here. Anybody need a little bit of clarification there? These verses were, are, were really helpful for me. So before I was a pastor and had like normal job, this was, this was helpful for me. Colossians 2, 23 and 24 were helpful for me. They guarded my heart to help me to remember how to trust the Lord in the midst of really just not, sometimes it's just not fun, but then sometimes some hard employer um, dynamics that were going on where, where we were working. So, Okay, well, if that's the case, let's press on then. Chapter, um, chapter 2, verse 21. These are some, some wonderful verses. Somebody read for us 21 down through 24. So he says, to this you have been called. What is the this? To this you have been called. Well, that's true, but in the context here, what? This manner of living, uh, submission, submission, humble respect, understanding who it is we're actually being respectful and submitted to is God. Yes, and, and suffering in that. It's like he's, to this you have been called to, to suffering in the midst of difficult circumstances. This is part of, this is what's on the itinerary for the Christian on the way home, is suffering. It's, it's on the itinerary here. The path of God's people is paved with, with suffering. To this you have been called. Because we live in a fallen world where everything is a opposed ultimately to, to God and His purposes in small ways and in big ways. It's within us. It's around us. Our natural response is going to be to hurt people who hurt us. To do evil to, to those who have done evil to us. To respond and try to get people back. Someone gossips about you, what do you want to do? Oh yeah, well, I got something on you. Someone hits you, you want to hit them back. But he says, no, there's, that's not the way of Christ, though. Right? Verse 22. He committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to the one who judges justly. I mean, how odd would it have been if when you're reading through the Gospels, it said, and when they spat at Jesus, Jesus thus cursing and spitting back at them said something. <laughs> That's just not the way of Christ. That's just not, that's not what he did. And as odd as that would be, it should be similarly odd for God's people to be doing that. That we, we don't return evil for evil. But rather, what did it say that he did? That phrase, y'all, you've got to get that. He continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He kept entrusting himself to the Father. 
He kept doing it the whole way. How does Jesus persevere? Yes, He's God, but He's God-man. He kept saying, Father, into Your hands I commit my spirit. He, he continued, He knew the Father was going to make all things right. This is how you make it through. Whatever the circumstance or situation is, you keep trusting Him, saying, Lord, You will make this right. Lord, You will make this right. Lord, this will make, You will make this right. Whether it be small things in them, or whether it be large things. Like this is how you make it through in a North Korean prison camp. This is how you make it through um, under ISIS rule. This is how you make it through. You, you know that there's a day when God's going to make things right. And you keep entrusting yourself to the one who judges justly. Verse 24, He Himself bore our sins in His body on the tree that we might die to sin. So He, he was crucified so that we might die to sin, Romans 6, and live to righteousness. By His wounds we have been healed. Where's he quoting from there? Yeah, Isaiah 53. By his stripes, by his wounds, we have been healed. Verse 25, for we were straying like sheep, but now we have returned to the shepherd and overseer of our souls. God has shown us gospel love. He has cared for us. He has sought us. He has bought us while we wandered He paid for our sin in full on the cross, and now we are free to live for Him, knowing that if He would judge His own Son for our transgressions, we can can be sure that there's a day coming when those who will not honor the Son and see Him precious because of His sacrifice, that God will hold them accountable, and they will will be judged for everything that they've done. And we we can trust. We can trust. But in this, as we've seen several times through here, our hope ought be that God might use our suffering to help others to see that there's, there's gospel hope. That there is, there is good news of a Savior like this who would come and who would, would rescue us. All right, so that's Christian conduct as slaves. Now Christian conduct as, as spouses. Okay, so there's a, there's a word to, to wives and to Husbands here. He's going to start with the ladies. Um, ladies first. And then the, he's going to come to, to the husbands. Okay? So let's start here in verse, uh, verse 1, chapter 3. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives, when they see your respectful and pure conduct. So again, the word here, the command is to be, uh, to submit, to sub- subject yourself to, uh, to place yourself under. Now I think a word of clarification is important here. Um, the Bible does not call women to submit to men in general. The Bible does not com- command women to submit to men in general. Rather, it says that a woman if she gets married, is choosing to submit herself to one man, her husband. Okay? So this is, I think it's an important clarification just when we're thinking about this, this here. Um, um, when we hear this word of um, submission, 
want to just be clear because I, I know we don't, not everybody goes to this, this, this church and I know the churches that, that you guys come from are faithful in this, but just want to be really clear that this doesn't mean that, that a wife has less value, dignity, honor, um, is worth any, you know, uh, do any less respect, that she's any kind of inferior in any way, shape, or form. Uh, the wives are created in God's image just as much as the, the men are. But within marriage, there are different roles and different responsibilities. This is God's beautiful design. He calls a wife here to place herself under the care, the leadership, the protection, and the guidance of the husband that she has chosen um, to, be, to be married to. So submission is, submission is not a dirty word. Um, Jesus joyfully, during his time here on earth, submitted to the Father the church submits to Jesus, and within the context of marriage, wives get to play the role of the church, and husbands play the role of, of Jesus, and it is a living portrait of the gospel. This is, this is what marriage is, and we could do a whole other section on that, but there's, there's good design here. But marriage sometimes is, is, is quite difficult. And the scenario that's happening here is Peter's giving a, a word to wives who very likely the case is that the wives have heard the gospel and have believed it and the husbands have heard the gospel and rejected it. You notice there he says, so that even if some do not obey the word. Now it's, it's true that all wives live with sinners, okay? So... Um, if, if, you're, if you're a married woman, you know that to be true. But the focus here is, is likely being married um, to a non-Christian. So for those of you who are not married, do not marry a non-Christian. Like there's lots of scripture that's really clear about that, that we don't do that. Um, but it also makes life brutally miserable. Um, so if, you're just wanna, if you just want to go pragmatic for a moment, it is, don't do it, Okay. Because it's going to be really hard. You don't have the same worldview about where you came from, where you're going, why you're here, anything. Okay. So, but here, these wives, this has been the scenario where they have, they have come to know Jesus and their husbands do not. Um, now, again, this is, this is not meaning, this is not calling women or wives here to submit um, to their husbands in cases of the, the husbands asking them to do something immoral. Uh, the husband's asking them to do something um, illegal or abusive, okay? Um, so just want to be clear that the Bible does not permit husbands to use authority to be abusive um, to, to their wives. That is, that's from hell, and I just want you to know that, that God hates that. And if you know about any of those situations or circumstances that are going on, please let the elders of your church know so that they can help to intervene and, and, and help, okay? Please. That Christianity does not endorse in any way abuse of authority. Rather, it, it hates it because of what it, it says about God. Okay? Now, what feelings might a wife have who's married to, to a non-Christian or to someone who we could also apply to someone who's not submitting to God's word? What, what kind of feelings might, might a wife have? Lonely. So Lonely, true. Feeling to flee, yeah. And feeling like submission is going to cause them to sin. Mm. Submitting to someone who's not following the Lord. 
So you're going to cause the husband to sin or the wife to sin? Yeah. Yeah. So, depending on where he's, how he's trying to lead, there could be some some conflict there in the heart. Yeah. Yeah, maybe that, or even just as a wife, how come he's not believing? Am I not living up to the gospel well, you know? There's anger, there's going to be irritation, there's going to be fear, there's going to be despair. There's going to be this desire to control or fix him, right? There's going to be a lot of emotions that are going on here. And, and God in his mercy knows, knows this. And he gives a word to wives here um, who are in that situation. Wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they might be one with a word, or one without a word, when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Now, this is, again, not the only verse about how to be a wife. Um, there, are, there are times you speak the truth in love, okay? That, that needs to happen. Husbands, just so you know, God created Adam as a perfect man, and he needed a helper, okay? So... Married dudes or dudes who want to be married, you need a helper, okay? You need that, right, Daniel? Amen, that's right. Need it, need it, right, Coley? <laughs> so this is not a call for wives to be a doormat or to be muzzled or anything like that or some kind of maid who just goes fetches something for him. That's, that's not at all the call here. But this is to guard your heart from, from a posture of nagging, from a posture of sharply attacking, saying, when you speak, be kind, be gentle. At times, you need to be silent. You've, you've made your point, you've shared the gospel, you've been clear, you, things, you know what's, he knows what you're doing, he may not fully understand it, but he's, and it's time to just keep trusting the Lord and try to be faithful. Now, I just want to be really clear that this is not an easy situation. This is very difficult. There's people I know and love who are in this situation right now, and it is very hard. It's very hard. And this is why, again, living this out in the context of a church is really important. You need people around you who are going to help you, be praying for you, be caring for you, so that you don't despair. But, but God can use the witness there um, to, to win them over. He says, verses 3 and 4, um, Don't let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair, the putting on of gold jewelry, or the clothing you wear. But let the adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. So this is not a call to abstain from all kinds of, of physical beauty or um, style or that kind of stuff at all. But rather, it's he wants to be really clear where true beauty lies. Right. So true beauty is found not in getting all decked up on the outside, but in a Christ-like, gentle, non-critical, non-controlling, non-demeaning, non-demanding spirit where there's respectfulness and holiness. He says that is precious in God's sight. God sees that, and He delights in that, even if your husband doesn't understand it. Verse 5, he says, This is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, by submitting to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And husbands, never quote that verse to your wife. And you are her children 
if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. So, so married women who hope in God show it by submitting to their own husbands. <laughs> he already started. <laughs> Lucky the Coley's sitting over there right now. <laughs> yes. <laughs> wow. Um, <laughs> yeah, so this, this is not, this kind of posture of the heart, ladies, this is, this is not because he's so amazing. This is not because of, of who he is. This is not based on his worth or his performance, but it's on the fact that God has called you to do it. Because this is one of the things I, I, I try to remember, is that it, so in, a marriage, in a marriage, the way that a husband loves his wife as Christ loved the church and lays down his life for her and cares for her and honors her and shepherds her in love, that's worship to God. And he will be held accountable to God for the way he does that, regardless of what she ever does. And for the wives, wives, the way that they submit to their husbands with respect and show love and give wisdom and help and um, give insight and, and, and help them to, to further the things that God has called them to do as a couple, the way that they do that is worship to God. And they will be held accountable on how they do that, not based on what he does. So in the end, we've got to remember that you've got to do what God wants you to do, no matter what somebody else does. And this, this applies, obviously, not just in marriage, but within marriage context, it, it, it does. That, that you can worship God even if your spouse is not. And that in the end, you're, you're held accountable for, for how, how you do now, this can be very fearful at times. And he, he knows that. He goes, if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. So there are some things that are frightening. He says, don't fear the things that are frightening. You see that? He says, they are frightening. Rudeness, insensitivity, neglect, being sinned against, leaving you, staying there without Christ. Him... Him going to hell if he doesn't repent. Those are frightening things. But he says here, do not fear them. Do not be controlled by them. Don't try to control them. But rather, trust. This keeps coming back to even what we heard yesterday about how, how fearing God puts all other fears in, in their place. So, just want to be clear that yes, there are things within the marriage context here, especially when you're living with an unbeliever that are frightening. But he says, don't be controlled by those things. But rather fear God, who is the one who, who Jesus entrusted himself to, knowing that God will make things right. Now husbands, verse 7, they just got one verse. Super easy, right? No. Verse 7. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you or fellow heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Man. Husbands, 
God cares very much how you relate to your wife. In the book of Ephesians, in that section that's dedicated to husbands, three times, so wives are told to submit to their husbands. Husbands are not commanded to have authority over their wives. The fact is that that's what marriage is. They do have authority over. So he tells you how to have authority over. Three times, love as Christ loved the church, laying down his life for her. Love as you would your own body. And love her as you would yourself. Love, love, love. That is to be the mark. That's the mark that Jesus had for his church. And it's to be what marks a husband's love for his, his wife. Part of that's shown by living with your wife in an understanding way. Literally, with knowledge or according to knowledge or with consideration. So, husbands, just want to make clear that just because you're the place of the head, just because you're the one who has authority, just because she is called to submit to you, does not mean that you get to do just whatever you want to do. Like, that's just not the way it works at, at, at all. But rather here, this particular command calls you to learn your wife. Live with her according to knowledge. Learn her. Study her. Listen to her. I mean, so I've been married to Carrie for nine years. I could tell you right now, I could list out about 25 things that she's thinking about this day. Things that she's hoping for. Things that would make her day sad. Things that would make her day happy. Things that would be hard for her. I can tell you things she's fearing right now for the days and the weeks and the months and the years ahead. I can tell you regrets she has um, from days gone by. Because I've, I know her. Like, and I love her. And I've, I've tried to study her. Because as you know her, you're able to serve her better. So any authority that a husband has has been given by God. It's been given for the purpose of service. And you're not going to be able to serve her well if you don't know her well. So live with your wives in an understanding way, according to knowledge here. This means that her opinion matters. This means that that you use whatever you have to serve her. You give up your rights very often to help her for the good of her and the glory of God. And then notice the posture here, showing honor as the weaker vessel. Weaker here, the idea is is like porcelain. She is is precious. She's not fragile in a negative sense, but she's precious and invaluable. And rather than use your authority to control or to oppress or to just get your way, we are to lovingly edify and build up. Honor her in private and in public with your words, and with your posture. So for those of you who are married, I would encourage you to ask your wife how you're doing with this. Do you think I'm showing you honor? Do you think I'm treating you in a way that shows you Jesus? And if not, how can I do better? And then just close your mouth and let her talk. And listen. And don't come back with excuses. Don't come back with, yeah, well, if you do this, don't start that mess. Just take it, brothers, okay? And listen and be humbled and know that she just might be God's instrument of sanctification in your life, okay? Tells you why here. Since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, they have the same spiritual privilege 
privilege and eternal importance as, as you do. There is no caste system in the Christian life. And then, maybe the scariest part of it, that last phrase there, DJ, what's it say? That's right, yes. So that your prayers will not be hindered. NIV says, so that nothing will hinder your prayers. There's nothing that hinders a husband's prayers more than having a cold, dismissive, abusive, controlling, harsh, calloused, apathetic heart toward, toward their wife. The only prayer that God wants to hear, if that's the case, is one of repentance. So it matters very much how you relate to your spouse. God sees it and it matters to him. And I think that this is, this is one of those things where this, this is true for every relationship as well. That, that, that God cares how you relate to other people. And when we're not loving other people in ways that show honor and respect, it does, it hinders our prayers. Because it's sinful. And God would call us to, to repent. Last word I want to say on, on marriage here before we move on. This will be helpful whether you're married or not. Um, so, <laughs> husbands and wives, remember that God has given you the, the exact spouse that you need for you to grow in holiness. With whatever weirdnesses and weaknesses and sin struggles that they have, those are the exact prescription that Jesus thinks that you need to expose all of the things that you need to get sanctified in. So whenever I hear that mess about like, oh, well, she makes me angry. Well, maybe you're just angry and she's exposed it. Now, you don't provoke him to anger. But there's, we, we've got to see what's going on there. Like, Satan will tempt you to think, oh, I just need another spouse. I've got to find somebody else who will fit me better. What you've got to realize is that, you know, those first, it just doesn't work that way. Because then when you get married, guess what? They're going to have other things that are going to expose you again. The issue is in here. And God is magnified when a husband and wife both approach marriage in a way that says, okay, whatever struggles are being exposed right now, this is from God for our good so that we can grow in holiness. And I think that's true of really any relationship and any church setting that you're in. There's always going to be things that you don't like that exposes things. And it's easy to be like, oh, they're the problem. It's always wise to first say, what's coming out of me? And why is this coming out of me? And God, how might you be using these situations and circumstances to sanctify me and make me more like Jesus? Okay. All right, so that's... Glorifying God in our conduct as slaves and spouses. And that finishes that, that third section there. Anybody have any questions or, or comments you think would be helpful for everybody on, on that? All right. So let's move into this, this next section here under called to new behavior, verses 8 through 22 of, of chapter 2. We're going to look at suffering for righteousness' sake. Suffering for righteousness' sake. Um, and under this, we're going to see that we're, we're called to bless others while suffering. 
verses 8 through 12. Uh, keep a clear conscience in suffering, 13 through 17. And then to see that Christ suffered for sins, 18 through, through 22. So let's, let's start here with bless others while suffering. Um, start just with verse 8. Somebody read verse 8 for us. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, tender heart, and humble mind. Okay, good. This is, man, what an important verse for, I think, the church right now, right? All of you have unity of mind, have like-mindedness. So in, in the church, there is beautiful diversity. And, and I know the, the three churches that are most represented here are fairly diverse churches um, with Capitol Hill Baptist, ARC, and, and Delray, that, that there's increasing diversity in each of those churches, right? And at a time, always there's going to be things that press on that, that unity and make it difficult. But I think right now, with a lot of things that are going on in the political realm, this is a great verse to meditate on, to think how can we, how can we do this? How can we be like-minded? Unity of mind. Our like-mindedness is going to be about, about Jesus and about our treasuring Him because of our common lot as sinners. The priority of God's glory and His mission and that that is invaluable. And and one of the things that I think any of us who, know, who, are, yeah, who are aiming for unity, we know that unity does not just happen. It doesn't. It takes, it takes work. It takes prayer. It takes confession. It takes repentance. It takes work. Unity will not just happen in a church. You've got to labor for it and pursue it. Because you've got to know all the while, remember we talked about yesterday, there is a war going on right now. And if there's one thing that Satan doesn't want to happen, it's the one thing that Jesus prayed would happen, which is unity. That they would be one so that people would know that these are my disciples. It's the one thing Satan, you can be sure Satan doesn't want is unity in the church. And this is a command to have it. And notice what's going to accompany unity of mind here. Sympathy. The word means to share the same feelings. As Christians, we are to feel what others feel, which is going to require what? Yeah. Which, which how does that happen? Yeah. Like, so sympathy is birthed out of proximity. You've, you've got to be close enough to people. You can't, empathy's not going to grow over Facebook and Twitter. Like, it's just not, that's not the way it's going to go. It's not going to come just through reading books. It's going to come through, okay, I saw you said something on Facebook or Twitter. Let's go to lunch and let's talk about that because it confused me, right? Or let's read a book together and let's talk about this. Or let's just sit down and talk to me about whatever's going on in the news right now, how, how is this affecting you? How are you feeling that? And let me share with you how it's affecting me, and let's talk about that, and let's pray about that. And through that, God produces a sympathy for one another. Now, I want to be really clear here. I don't think that we have to agree on everything in order for there to be unity. I think there can be stark disagreements 
and still have great sympathy for one another. And I'm going to suggest that in this fallen world, that's going to normally be the case. There's going to be things that we just disagree on, but we can say, but you know what? I understand how you got to where you get, and I can't understand it fully because I'm not you, but, but I want to understand more. Teach me more. So with this unity of mind, there's sympathy and there's brotherly love. Warm, affectionate, committed care for each other. And also a a tender heart. Not hard-hearted. Not apathetic. Not distant. But one that is sensitive to fears and to desires of other people. What kind of things do you think hinder a tender heart. What, what kind of things hinder a, ten, a tender heart? Harsh words. Yeah, so harsh words. Yeah. Somebody says something to you, you're like, oh, I'm, I ain't going to let them say it to me again. You're going to harden your heart a little bit so it doesn't hurt next time. Good. What other things would, would hurt tenderness of heart? Yes, yes, yeah. If, 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 if we are constantly in fear or, or feel like we have to be in control and we've got to rectify this situation rather than knowing that it's the Lord who judges justly, the more that our hearts are entrusted to Him and they abide in heaven, the more tender they will be so that when a harsh word does come, yes, it hurts, but then we can say, listen, I just need you to know that that hurt me. And as a brother, if you're saying this to a brother or sister in Christ, that ought matter to them. And then you can try and work through it and work for for forgiveness. Good. Are you going to say something, Tyler? Apathy. Yeah. Yeah, so, so a disinterest. Yeah, so I just want you to know there's no room for apathy in the body of Christ. Because we are one, because we are a body, when one part of the body suffers, the whole part suffers. So even if it doesn't make any sense to you why somebody else is suffering... It ought concern you that it's happening. You know, when you when I stub my, my pinky toe, you know, not the big toe, but the pinky toe. You know what I'm talking about? Like you get your pinky toe in the corner, you're like, hell, my mouth knows it, my hands know it, my eye, I'm like, what is that? Alligator bit me? No. You know, I mean, like every part of my body responds, even if it's just the pinky toe, right? Well, it's the same thing in the body of Christ. That even if it doesn't make sense or it seems like a small thing to us, it's not. It matters. So yeah, apathy. Okay. Actually, that, I think that's really helpful. So particularly here in the D.C. area, as busy as we are, it can harden our hearts. To we just don't have time to love people. Don't have time to think about people. I just gotta make it, yo. And I gotta get home and go to sleep, or whatever it is we gotta do. Right? Yeah. It's good. Encourage you to keep talking about that, about ways that that, that might, uh, that, that unity and, and tenderheartedness might be hindered. The last thing he says here in verse 8, though, is, is a humble mind. Remember, remember Christ in this, the example from Philippians 2. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Study Jesus. Let Him be the model of love in your your life, in your church. Let 
The more that a church meditates on Jesus together, the more that their hearts are warmed toward Him and toward one another. We're confessing sins regularly. We're not hiding sins, but we have humble minds and say, Lord, I need, I need forgiveness. I need forgiveness from you who I've sinned against. Right. Then verse 9 here. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless for to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. You are called to blessing those who hurt you. That's part of what it means to be a Christian. Jesus said, follow me. What did Jesus do? He blessed those who cursed them, who cursed him. Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. It is natural to seek revenge, but Jesus calls us to bless those who hurt us. We follow his example of, of carrying the cross here. A great, great cross reference would be Romans 12. I'll just read it for us. Verses 17 through 19. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. You give thought to it. So when somebody does something evil to you and it hurts, if we're sober-minded, we're not just going to be reactionary, but we're going to say, okay, Lord, this has happened. Help me give thought to what is honorable in the sight of all. So somebody's, I mean, let's just take social media for a moment. Somebody says something, rather than just be like, oh, yeah, well, you're a troll or whatever, and like kind of get back at them and post a picture of their mother and be like, see, that's you. Like, don't do that stuff, okay? <laughs> but rather... Give thought to what is honorable in the sight of everybody. Because people are watching how you interact at work, how you interact at home, how you interact online, how you interact in general. People are watching. They see. Give, give thought to what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. As far as it depends on you, be at peace with everybody. You can't control everybody else. But by the grace of God, under the power of the Holy Spirit, self-control is one of the fruit of the Spirit, is fruit of the Spirit. And we are to, to control our tongues and ask God to give grace so that we might not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling. And then he says, so that you may receive a blessing. Well, what is that blessing? Well, it's, it's verses 10 and 11 here. He, and he quotes here um, from Psalm 34. He says, For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. He's quoting here in this context of calling people to, to show, um, to, to bless others while suffering. He, he's quoting here this, this promise of, of a blessing for trusting God in the midst of this. Right? And this, this comes from Psalm 34. It's a psalm where David wrote, you remember uh, that scene in 1 Samuel 21 where he's before Abimelech and he starts slobbering on the door. You remember that? that scene where he starts acting like a crazy guy. Psalm 34 is a response. That's what David was thinking in that moment. Which if you were, if I was ever one of those, you know, you always think a matching test is pretty easy. Like what situation goes with which psalm? 
Like if you were playing that game, I would never have put the Abimelech scene with Psalm 34. Because Psalm 34 is so amazing about how, how we trust God and like how he is my hope and he is my refuge. And then, but David, that's actually what he was doing in the midst of it. He was trusting the Lord. The psalm is about God's special care for his people. And, and especially when they entrust themselves to him in the midst of their sufferings. That's what Psalm 34 is all about. If you're not familiar with Psalm 34, I encourage you to spend some time there. There is future blessing that awaits us in glory, but there is also a present blessing now of knowing his sustaining hand in the midst of very difficult things. So what's the blessing that we get from not reviling in return? As you're entrusting yourself to the one who judges justly, there is a peace there is that comes from the presence of God who draws near to his people in the midst of suffering that, that is priceless, that the world does not know. He says that is the, the blessing that we have. Romans 8 says it this way, that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. That assuredness that blessed assurance that Jesus is mine and that I am his and if God is for us, who can be against us? That, that, is, a, that is blessedness and that guards us in the midst of, of suffering so that we can pursue unity of mind and sympathy and brotherly love, tenderheartedness, rather than seeking to revenge and revile. Now he moves on in verse 13, Okay. So in verse 13 through 17, he's going to tell us to keep a clear conscience in our suffering. Somebody read for us 13 down through 17. If you're going to pursue righteousness in this world, you will face suffering for it. And what, he, what, he's going to say, what he's saying here is that in the midst of this, you've got to pursue keeping a clear conscience. Do not use your suffering as an excuse for sin. Don't use it as a, well, this is going on, so now I get a, I get a, I get a pass, and I get to do kind of whatever I want to do. He's saying, no, don't, don't let that be the case. Who is there to harm you? If you are zealous for what is good, and this is most normally the case, but we know that it's not always the case, and he knows that too. That's why he's going to go on. But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. This is where he might be quoting Jesus from the Sermon on the Mount. You remember, blessed are those, or blessed are others when they, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. He says, have no fear of them. Again, this is, 
He's not unaware of the fact that there are fearful things in this life. But that fearing God that we looked at in the earlier chapter, that holds all other fears in their place. He says, don't, don't fear them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ as Lord, or sanctify Christ as Lord in your heart, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. He's saying in the midst of your suffering, when evil is being done to you, whether it be persecution or just circumstance or whatever it may be, and people are watching you, set Christ as Lord in your heart. This is what it means to be a Christian. He is my Lord. He is the one to whom I look. He is the one to whom I trust. He is the one in whom I hope. Set that up and let that be what guides you in the midst of it. Christ is still Lord. He's not, he doesn't stop being Lord when hard things come to get you an excuse to kind of do, do whatever. He says, don't fear people. Keep Christ as Lord in your heart. Be devoted to Him. And always be thinking about how your love for Him affects everything that you do. Your love for Him should affect everything. And when that happens, be praying for open doors for the gospel. Because people will ask you, okay, all right, listen, I've been watching you for a while. I don't understand why you're doing this. Why are you taking that from him? Why are you taking that from her? Why, why, why are you not freaking out in this situation? And then we have the opportunity to speak. Always being prepared to make a defense to everyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. So by living in a way where Christ is Lord, when that's your aim, by doing that and pursuing that at all times, it will set you apart, the light will shine, and people will ask. And you should pray. This is one of the things we, we pray for. I know, I'm sure you guys pray for the same thing, but we pray for regularly is open doors, that God would open doors for the gospel, and that we would have courage to speak in those. And I think this verse right here helps us with that. So as you're living for the glory of God in the midst of very difficult circumstances, you're praying for open doors that people would see the light that's shining from your good deeds, and that as that happens, that you would be able to make a defense. That this is why. This is why I'm living as I, I am. And then, but do you notice again, what's the posture there at the end of verse 15? How do you do this? Gentleness and respect. This is one of the things that I, 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 re, I really respect so much about, about Thabiti, pastor over at ARC. I think he, has a, he does a wonderful job of, of reasoning with opponents in a way that, that shows respect, um, even if he completely disagrees with them. He's a great model for that. If you've never, um, never watched any of the debates that he's done, conversations that he's had publicly with someone that he disagrees with, I think he, he most normally does a really good job with that. Um, and, and I think it should be the posture of Christians that we, we recognize this person I'm talking to is made in God's image. And, and they have their own hurts and pains and scars. They have, they, have their, they, have, they have reasons that they're acting the way that they act. And maybe it's just a, yes, certainly maybe they're giving in to sinful things, but, but the fact is that, that God made them. And that helps you to show respect and have patience with them as you are giving the reason for the hope that is within you. And then verse 16, 
having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that would be God's will, than for doing either evil. I'm sorry. So as you're suffering, remember to guard your conscience. It is easy to make excuses for sin in the midst of painful circumstance. To kind of think you get, you kind of deserve an escape right now. You kind of, you kind of, you kind of earned it. Guard your hearts from that. Rather, set your heart to love God and love others, obeying His word. That being your primary circumstance, knowing that yes, suffering is coming, but Christ is coming too, and I can. I can rest by his strength until that day comes with the hope of others around you. Hopefully shining your light in such a way that it, it draws others to Christ. So before we take a, a break, I, wanna, I just want to share a story with you of how this, how this might have played out. So there's, there's, this, there's a, a lady who, um, I won't give you her name, but she, she grew up in Iraq. Um, she grew up reading the Quran. Um, she called herself a, a Muslim, um, thought Allah was God, that Muhammad was his prophet. Um, but she said that she never really had, had peace in the midst of her journey as, as a Muslim. And then she, um, one day, she was watching the news, and she saw these 21 Coptic Christians in orange jumpsuits who were led down a beach by... Um, by ISIS fighters and uh, how they were lined up and she said she, she watched the video as they um, yeah, were put on their knees and as they were praying to Christ and then they were, they were beheaded on the beach there and she said that as she watched that she couldn't get past the question of how did those men have so much peace she saw she could read their in some of the video, you can see where they, you can read their lips where they're, they're crying out to Jesus and they're praying to Jesus. She said, who is this Jesus that would give them such peace in a difficult time like that? And then she said that the next couple of days, videos began coming out of interviews with, with some of the parents. She said there was one particular mom who said, whoever these, these men are who killed my son, I want them to come to my house and I want them to know that I've forgiven them. And I would invite them to come in and I would sit down with them and I would talk to them about Jesus and, and why I'm able to forgive them. And she said that she had just couldn't fathom that. Now, if there's ever a time when as a mother you would have reason to be embittered at God and at enemies, I mean, that would, that would be it. But that person started started seeking out, and you know what? God in his mercy brought a Christian into her life. She used to come to Wednesday night Bible study and sit right here. And uh, she, know, she got converted. <laughs> she, she, she said, you know what? I want to know about this Jesus. And she's come to know the Jesus who sustains his people in the midst of whatever suffering they may face. And as... The, that example of these brothers walking through this, surrendering all to him, this mother not reviling in return, but having a clear conscience in the midst of it, God used that to awaken the heart 
of someone to see that that's not in Islam. That's, Allah doesn't have that. Muhammad doesn't have that. And uh, today she's a sister in Christ. And I just want you to know that it's, it doesn't always work exactly like that. But God uses your pursuit of Christ as Lord in the midst of suffering for his glory. It is not in vain, brothers and sisters. It is not in vain. So keep trusting yourself to the one who judges justly. I'm going to pray, then we'll take a break, and then we'll come back and, and jump in here. Father, we thank you for, for Christ, and we thank you that he is indeed Lord. And we thank you that um, you use even the suffering of your saints for the glory of your name among the nations. And we pray, God, that you might use us in whatever way um, for your glory. That, God, you would, uh, you would help us to... It's, it's in some ways easy sitting in here talking about it. But Lord, as we go out into situations and circumstances that we can't control, that are very painful and sometimes even cost lives, God, we, we pray you would help us to entrust ourselves to you who judge justly and that, God, you would produce the fruit of life in our lives and that many would come to know you. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.